So an elderly couple was lying in bed. This couple had been married 65 years. They're lying in bed on either side of a king-size mattress, and the wife is not feeling good about the space, the distance, physically and emotionally, between her and her husband of so many years. And so as they're falling asleep one night, she says to her husband, remember how when we were young you used to hold my hand? <sighs> and the husband lets out a sigh of his own, and eventually his wrinkled hand makes its way all the way across the king-size mattress, and he grabs a hold of hers. But she's still not feeling satisfied. And she says to her husband of 65 years, do you remember how when we were young you used to cuddle me close? So the husband lets out another sigh. And he works his body all the way over to the other side of the bed and he does his best to cuddle his wife. But she's still not satisfied. She says to her husband, remember how when we were young you used to nibble my ear? With that, the husband threw the covers off the bed and he ran out of the room and her heart was broken and she yelled, where are you going? And he yelled back, to get my teeth. <laughs> oh, it's not really that funny of a joke, but I just love it. Today, we are continuing a series that we have been in called Baggage, where we're looking at some of the, the hurts and the hangups and the wounds that we carry with us into very important parts of our life. And today, uh, driven by Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, we're going to be talking about the baggage that we bring to sexuality. And the scriptures tell us quite clearly, no matter how uncomfortable you might feel about talking about this, no matter how awkward it might be to deal with this, especially in this day and age, that this is an important thing. No matter our age, our stage of life, it's an important thing for all of us to wrestle with because it's a significant part of our lives and it's affected by and impacted by our faith in Jesus. Today we're talking about the baggage we bring to sexuality. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh man, where is this sermon going to go? The only thing that would be worse is if he were talking about money. <laughs> Today is the day I brought a friend. This is my worst nightmare. Now, let me just say this. We're going to be speaking uh, along the same lines that Paul does. We're going to be talking in, in relatively general and foundational terms. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go into some of the details of how this gets lived out in life or how we, in light of this, should view certain things uh, that are alive and well in our culture today. That's not to say we don't have teachings on those things, and those things aren't important. Some of the more political, social, cultural implications of the Christian view of human sexuality. Uh, those things are important, and at the end of today's sermon, I'm going to give you a link to some resources that I would suggest if you want to dive deeper into the implications of what it is that we believe about this. And at later dates and in other settings, we will walk through our whole view of human flourishing and human sexuality according to the scriptures. But today, we're going to be speaking in kind of a broad, foundational way. In order to do that, we have to begin by defining some of our terms for this conversation and articulating what the problem is. So, so here's the terms. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that human beings uh, were created with at least three things in mind. We were created for spirituality, for relationships, and for intimacy. We were created as spiritual creatures, relational creatures, and as intimacy-oriented creatures. Now, what I mean by spirituality is this, that human beings are made by God with a hunger and a desire to connect with and understand the divine. 
Spirituality, in its broadest sense, is a drive and a hunger to connect with and engage with and to know and to experience God. Now, a subcategory under spirituality would be religion, which are the specific things that we do, the intentional ways in which we pursue and encounter with the divine, with intensity and intentionality. Relational or relationships would be defined this way. It's our hunger and our desire to connect with and know and experience other people. We have in us a desire to know and be known by others. And a subcategory underneath relationships or our relational nature would be sexuality, which is the intentional and intense ways in which we very vulnerably connect with and get to know another person. And then all of this, our spiritual aspects of our lives and our relational aspects of our lives, happen under the banner of intimacy. We were created with a drive and a desire for intimacy, which broadly defined as this, is our desire to be known and accepted and to be safe with others. You have a need for intimacy, to be fully seen and to be accepted for who you are, and to feel safe in that relationship. So taking all this together, spirituality is how we pursue intimacy with who? With God, with religion being something very specific underneath that heading. And then relationships are how we pursue intimacy with, with others, with sexuality being a subheading, a very specific one, underneath all of that. We are spiritual, relational and intimacy-oriented human beings. Now, that's kind of the foundation. Here's the problem, though. Sin, in Genesis 3, enters the picture, and it ruins everything. And I'm not going to go into theological detail about the impact of sin. And instead, I'm going to give you an image. Um, Think of sin, the entrance of sin into the world like this. Think of the entrance of sin, the fall of humankind, as the lights going out on the world. When things were created, the lights were on and we could see God fully and we could see each other fully. There was no darkness or misunderstanding or dysfunction anywhere. The lights were on and then sin enters the picture and all of a sudden the lights go off. And because the lights are off and we can't see and understand the world in which we used to, these gifts that God has given, among them spirituality and relationships and our desire for intimacy, these gifts, because there's darkness now, they fall to the ground and they shatter in a million pieces. And we as human beings, what we do in the darkness, because we we know we have spiritual needs and relational needs and a hunger for intimacy, what we as human beings have been doing since the entrance of sin, since the lights went out, is we have been clamoring around the floor in the darkness, finding pieces of spiritual stuff and religious stuff, and relationship stuff, and sexual stuff, and and our desire for intimacy, and we've been kind of piecing it together and gluing it together in the dark. Now, let me ask you this. If, If you were in the dark and you knocked over a priceless vase, and I asked you to try and glue it back together in the dark, how good of a job do you think you would do? Can't even see the hand in front of your face, but you're supposed to put this thing back together. Best case scenario, you put something back together and it barely, barely resembles the original. 
And then you try and pour water in it, and there's holes all over the place, and you, you grab a hold of it too tightly, and there's, there's sharp edges, and it cuts you, and it hurts you. That, that, my friends, is a picture of human beings trying to make sense of their spiritual needs and their relational needs and their intimacy needs in darkness. We know we have these needs. We know there's all these broken shards of this beautiful thing all over the place, and we're fumbling around in the darkness trying to piece something together. But what we piece together in the darkness of our sin-stained minds and of the sin-broken world isn't an accurate picture of what God ultimately designed. And it has sharp edges, and we hold it too tightly, and we misuse it, and there's holes all over the place, and it can actually hurt us in some ways. And that's where your baggage comes from. That's where your baggage comes from. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. In this dark world, in the ancient world, dark like ours still, darkened by sin, in this ancient world, uh, the ancient people had taken their vague understanding of spirituality and their, their relational and, and sexual needs and all these other things, their desire for intimacy, and have kind of wound them together in this very warped spirituality. You see, in the, in the ancient world, they had a very narrow view, much like we do today in our secular culture, a very narrow view of sexuality, which was just focused on the act of intimacy, and a very narrow view of religion and spirituality, and they, they married those two things together. And so what you had was this belief that in many circles, in many kind of cults, that there was, there was just one way to truly encounter the divine or to please the gods, and that was to have some kind of sexual experience in the context of your faith. So for example, there was uh, the worship of the god Artemis, and there were temple prostitutes in the temple. And the way in which to have an encounter with the divine was to have an encounter with a temple priestess. In fact, the largest of these temples was found in Ephesus, where Paul is writing. It was the temple to Artemis. This is the religious atmosphere that Paul's writing to. He's writing to people who are now followers of Jesus in this context where people covered in the darkness of sin are trying to piece together their spiritual and relational and intimacy needs in all kinds of truly dysfunctional and broken ways. And it's, it's hurting them and harming others. And they are being pulled into it. People are saying, no, you still need to be a part of this cult practice. This is how we meet our relational and, and spiritual needs. This is how we do this. And they're being pulled into it, which is why Paul says, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Paul is writing to them in chapter five saying, they are misunderstanding what our needs are. They're, they have a warped view of spirituality and relational needs and sexual needs. All of this stuff is misunderstood. It's broken and it's bad and it's wrong. And if you embrace it like they've embraced it, it's just going to do harm to you as well. That's his message. Now, I would like to say that, that things are very, very different from Paul's day and all that was going on in Ephesus. But you know what I'm going to say. Not much has changed. No, we don't have temples to Artemis, but we still have, because again, we're darkened by sin too, speaking kind of globally about humanity, we, we still have a, a dysfunctional view of spirituality and religion, 
Uh, we still have a very dysfunctional view of what our relational needs are and a very narrow view of how to meet some of those things. We are hyper-focused on one aspect of sexuality and relationships, and we lift that up as kind of ultimate, and we mix all of it together in kind of truly dysfunctional and unhelpful ways. And you've seen it. It's, it's one of the reasons why this conversation, even talking about it in broad terms like we are this morning, makes everyone so awkward because we, we all carry baggage related to this because of the day and age we live in because we are so mixed up backward and broken on this. The fact that I mentioned that word, sexuality, and we're going to talk about it today, and the fact that everything in you and me gets tense, and we're like, oh, we can't do that, tells you just how dysfunctional of a day and age we live in. Nobody's allowed to think anything. Nobody's allowed to say anything. You can't have any firm opinions. If you say the wrong thing, what happens to you? Yeah, exactly. You, you, you get canceled or whatever we're calling it these days. It, it's just like trying to handle a nuclear bomb. Nobody wants to do it. And that in and of itself is evidence of the issue at hand. We just can't deal with it and talk about it. Th th things haven't changed. We have a warped understanding of relationships, a warped understanding of spirituality. We're hyper-focused on different aspects of each, and we mix it all together into this mess. And no, we don't have temples to Artemis, but we're still trying to use sexuality in the context or out of the context of relationships to try and meet deep spiritual needs. We do. We don't have temples like they do in Ephesus, but, but my goodness, what do we have? We have websites that we frequent that we don't tell our spouse about. That's what we have. That's our temple. We have explicit content, content in, in movies and television shows that we stream. We have apps that we swipe left or swipe right on. I don't know what it is. We have, we have thirst traps and clubs we take clients to because, you know, it's for work. Not to mention the fact that we obsess over going to the gym or the surgeons that we see to alter our bodies, not just because we want to stay fit or stay young, but because we have bought completely into the fact that, the idea rather, that we need to stay desirable sexually in the eyes of somebody else in order to matter. These things become our temple and we use them as ways to try and meet in a backward sense all of these deep relational and intimacy needs that we have. We do it as a way, whether you know it or not, to experience intimacy. But you know and I know that these temples don't satisfy. These idols that we sacrifice to don't get us what we want. They don't satisfy our spiritual and relational needs for intimacy. We're fumbling around in the darkness. Our view of relationships and sexuality is too warped and our knowledge of what we truly need to experience is too dim. We're fumbling in the darkness with broken shards of important things and that's where our baggage comes from because as we fumble in the darkness with broken shards, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. And you have hurt others and others have hurt you. Step one is we have to admit that. And you might say, well, Matt, I, I get what you're saying. Spiritual needs, relational needs, religion, a subheading under one, sexuality, a subheading under one. Uh, apart from Christ, we live in darkness. We mess some of these things up. But, but, but Matt, honestly, I don't have relational and sexual baggage. I don't have any of that. I don't. Okay. Do me a favor. <clears throat> if you think you don't have any, just, uh, just take, take these two fingers in your right hand, right? Just humor me. Take these two fingers in your right hand and place them right here on your left, just on your wrist, right? And if you feel anything there, like a, like a pulsing or anything like that, uh, that means that's a good sign. That's a good sign. It means you're alive. If you feel nothing, let, us, let one of our ushers know. We'll drag you out. 
But, but if you feel a pulse, and I hope you do, if you feel a pulse, what that means is, science tells us, <laughs> what that means is you have baggage. That's what that means. <laughs> even in this area, even in this area. Now, we could spend a ton of time talking about all the baggage that, that our fumbling in the darkness has wrought on this subject for you and for me and for so many people that we know. But we, we, don't, we don't have time to do that. It would be a heartbreakingly long list. Instead, let, let me give you three types of baggage that most people tend to carry because of our fumbling around in the dark on this, okay? Most everyone carries at least these three things. First, you likely have the baggage of trauma that you have endured. Get, getting very serious, the number of people who have been victimized by some form of sexual assault, even in the church, is truly staggering. And far, far, far too many of people who are even here this morning carry that trauma with them of somebody else, not to take any, anything away from that person, but who was fumbling around in the dark with broken and dangerous things, trying to satisfy needs in, in terrible, terrible ways, victimizing other people. Far too many of us carry that. Trauma also comes in the form of, of people objectifying you, of people making comment after comment on your appearance, maybe even from a young age. Or trauma also comes in the form of someone showing you images and, and ideas at a young age that warp and distort your understanding of what intimacy is, of what healthy relationships are, and what proper healthy sexuality looks like. And far too many of us know what that is, too. I could go on, but, but you, you get my point. Many of us carry trauma related to this. Second thing is that you likely carry the baggage of lies that you've been told. We all have a story of, in particular, like sexual formation, which is the stories we've been told about what it is and, and what it's for and, and whether it's good or bad. And, and it's good for you to know how, this, how your notion of what it is has been formed and shaped. Has it been formed and shaped by the scriptures? Uh, who else has formed and shaped it? And what, is, what have you been told? Many of us have been told, if not all of us have been told, at least a handful of lies about this from family and friends, and in particular from culture that's constantly trying to form our view on this. Some of the lies that we've been told sound like this. You may have been told sexuality is everything. It's the most important thing. That's a lie. On the flip side, you may have been told, you know, sex is nothing. It's not, just, it's not that big of a thing. It's just an act. It's just bodies. doesn't matter. That's a lie, too. Or maybe you've, been, maybe you've been told that sexuality is dirty and bad and we don't talk about it, we don't think about it. That's a lie as well. Or maybe you've been told that your sexual self is your whole self. It's your whole identity. And unless you figure that thing out, you know nothing about yourself. That's a lie as well. Or maybe you were taught that women are primarily an object of a man's desire. That's a lie. Or maybe in some way, shape, or form, you've been taught that all men are predators and that you have to protect yourself from all of them. That's a lie, too. Many of us carry the baggage of lies in this regard. And then lastly, we all carry baggage of mistakes that we have made. Because of all the, the fumbling around in the darkness when it comes to sexuality, we've all, we've all made mistakes. 
And because our need for relational intimacy is such a powerful force, when we, when we do regrettable things and we make mistakes, it tends to cast a shadow over our lives. And, and, we, and we, carry, we carry resonant shame and, and regret connected to how we've lived this out in the past or how we are living this out in the present. Which of those three forms of baggage resonates the most with you? Is it trauma that you've experienced? Is it lies that you've been told? Is it mistakes that you've made? Is it all three? Because for many of us, it's all three. Now here's where the good news comes in. Even though we all carry baggage like this, trauma and lies and mistakes, remember what Paul said in Ephesians. You know, I, I said that sin is like the lights going out and the whole world walks in darkness. Now, that's not my analogy. I didn't make that up. That comes from the scriptures. In particular, it comes from Paul in the New Testament. Because what he says is that though we are born into this world in darkness, fumbling around, making mistakes, misunderstanding things, abusing things, having too narrow view of things, even though we're fumbling around in the dark trying to piece together a broken masterpiece, he says something hopeful and, and ultimately life-giving and comforting to you and me who happen to know Jesus. Ephesians 5, he says this. We're looking at verses 3 and 8. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Here's the key, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. You were part of the unenlightened world. But now you are light in the Lord. Another way to translate this is you are enlightened by Jesus. In the ancient world, the first and second century, baptism was often referred to as enlightenment. The lights turn on. You have been enlightened in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Paul calls the Ephesian church away from their dark and distorted sexual and relational practices. And he doesn't just say, stop it, because it's bad or wrong. He says, stop it, because that's not who you are. Everybody else lives in darkness. You don't live in darkness. You're a child of what? You're a child of the light. In you, through Christ, the lights have been turned on. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, well I think he's speaking to so much of the trauma that comes with this. Take for, example, take, for example, trauma, mistakes, and lies. In, in an unenlightened view of the world, apart from Christ, your trauma drives and guides you in ways in which you don't even understand. It happened to you, and it's a wound you carry, and you might not even realize how you are constantly reacting to that wound. Constantly. But in Jesus Christ, the lights have been turned on, and you get to say, what, what happened to my body does not define me. What happened to Jesus' body in his death and resurrection defines me. The lights are turned on. Now you know what truly defines you. In, in, in a dark and unenlightened view, you, you believe the lies and you don't even know that they're lies. But now you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the word of God in front of you. You have Jesus speaking to you and leading to you. And you have something that you can take all this stuff that you've inherited and learned and you can compare it against. And you can hold it up against the truth of the word. You now have the light. You now have truth in Jesus. You don't have to simply live by lies. 
And then most importantly, oh my goodness, most importantly, the mistakes that you make that you feel like cast a shadow over your life cast no shadow at all because Jesus Christ has covered you in the bright light of the mercy and grace that he has earned for you. And the bright light of his love for you is so bright that it makes every shadow of sin and mistake and regret and of dumb decision, it makes all of it disappear. It happened, but it doesn't have you or own you. You are not what you have done. You are what Jesus Christ has done for you. The lights are turned on. You no longer owned by trauma or lies or mistakes. The lights have been turned on. Not only that, not only that, but in Jesus Christ, you get a perfect, beautiful picture of what intimacy, what this thing we're longing for looks like. You see, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, and and in his divinity, as he walked in this world, he experienced a perfect relationship with the Father, a perfect spiritual relationship with the Father, because he himself is God in flesh. His connection with God the Father is unimpeded and perfect, and you see him living that out. He and the Father, he says, are one to the point where he lives out the Father's will in complete submission by dying on a cross for the sins of the world, something you and I would have ran from and rejected, but because he was so intimately connected to the heart and the will and the Father, he did it for you. But then he's perfectly intimately connected in his humanity to all of us. He lives in deep community and connection with his disciples, with with his earthly family, with his mother and his brothers, and with all humanity in his death on the cross. There is nothing more intimate than despite being an innocent and perfect person, aligning yourself with the sins and struggles and the punishment of mankind. Jesus Christ knew no sin, but he knew your sin. And he willingly went on a cross and he took our nakedness and our shame. We're the ones who stand naked and ashamed for all that's been done to us and all that's been done by us. But what does Jesus do? He says, I'm perfect, but I'm gonna align myself with your nakedness and your shame and your hurt and your sadness and I'm gonna be tacked on a sinner's cross with no clothing on my body and with no defense on my lips. And he did that to align himself with your hurt and your wounds and your shame and your shadow side. But not only did he align himself to you in such deep and incredible intimacy, he conquered the darkness by rising out of the grave. He not only aligns himself with your sin and your shame, he shows your sin and your shame and your darkness to be powerless because he rises out of the grave and he defeats it. And he says, that victory now belongs to you. That's why you walk in the light. Because I conquered your sin and your shame. I conquered the trauma and the mistakes and the lies. I conquered all of it. So now you belong to me by virtue of your belief and baptism. Walk in the light. He shows us perfect intimacy in his relationship with the Father and then what he does for us to forgive us and make us his own. And intimacy is what we are after. Now with that said, what does walking in the light in this regard look like? And I said at the beginning that there's a lot of stuff that we could and should and need to talk about and perhaps at a later date we will. But for right now, I want to give you, very quickly, I want to give you three things. I want to give you three things that, that I think, three practices 
embody what it looks like to begin to walk in the light in terms of rightly ordering and understanding your spiritual and relational, your religious and even sexual needs as a follower of Jesus Christ. I think it begins like this. First, it begins by naming your shame and knowing your story. You are free in Jesus Christ to name your shame and know your story. And we all carry shame in this regard, in this area of life. And we all have a story of how we've been formed and affected. Oftentimes we hide our story or we worship it. Both are defense mechanisms. We hide it and we pretend it doesn't exist or we glorify it and we make it our whole identity. Jesus says you don't have to do either of those things. You can just name it. And you can know that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what happened to you? How were you formed? How were you shaped? What's your story in this area of life? And once you're able to name that story, to name your shame and that story, you can then take it and hold it up against the truth of God's word. And you can then lay the grace of Jesus Christ on top of it and see it through the lens of God's love for you, not, was, not what was done by you or to you. And that's when life change happens. Not only are you free to know your shame and to name your story, but you are free to seek a fuller understanding of intimacy. As people who live in a, in a sinned, darkened world, we are tempted, even as followers of Jesus Christ, to live with a darkened understanding of our, of our relational and spiritual, religious, and sexual needs and to get it all mixed up and in particular, to fall into the same trap that our culture does, which is to say, all these deep needs get met in this extremely narrow way, namely physical intimacy. And you and I both know that that doesn't work. You are free to have a broader understanding of what intimacy is. That yes, in the context of commitment and marriage, you need that physical intimacy, and it is the height of intimacy and vulnerability, acceptance and safety in a loving, committed covenant relationship, but, but you need more than that. You need a network of people around you who see you, who know you, and who accept you. Intimacy with a spouse is, if you're married, of utmost importance, but it is not of only importance. You, you need other people who know you, and you can share space and you can share emotions with. Don't put the weight of all that need for intimacy on one person. They can't and should not bear it. You need a broader, enlightened understanding of the fact that you are a relationally oriented, intimate creature. And yes, you need this with your spouse. That's incredibly important, beautiful, wonderful, a picture of the gospel even. It is. But you need other people who know you, see you, and accept you. Broader view. And then lastly, you are set free in Jesus Christ to be a better steward of your body. Again, so many of us have been caught up in the thinking that the only way to meet these needs is through this very narrow lane of physical sexual expression. Or that it's, it's simply about what is done by or to or with my body that can help me figure all this out and meet these needs. And that doesn't cut it. You are free to understand that some of those deepest physical needs are met, yes, in the context of marriage and relationships, but that you have other intimacy needs and that you don't have to constantly utilize the flesh to try and meet them. And if you have been caught up 
in some kind of sexual sin that what you are invited to do is to step away from it, let go of it, be a better steward of your body and to confess it and to know that the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ forgives it. That you don't have to use all of this to get all of these deep needs met. It's not working for you, and it won't work. You can confess that and receive forgiveness for all the broken ways in which you've tried to satisfy that. I'll close with this. I told you I had some resources for you. If you go to stmarkhuston.org slash resources or you click the, or you follow the QR code that's on the screen, it'll take you to a website where we've got a whole bunch of resources laid out for you. Uh, if you want to understand what our biblical sexual theology is here at St. Mark and, and our view on a whole host of issues, you want to understand how this view from Ephesians 5 gets played out in a number of really pertinent social, cultural, theological ways, I have a list of resources there that I highly suggest to you. And in the, in the near future, in another setting, we were going to dive deeper into some of those things. But I'll end with this. In 1945, there was a, a delightful little book written, uh, um, a novel called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And it's the story of a fictional Catholic priest as he navigates life in a small town, a town that's coming of age and trying to figure out what it believes about the church, about Jesus, about all of cultural change and everything that's happening. And in one exchange, Father Smith talks with a, uh, a young adult in the town who is, by her own admission, probably the most progressive person in their little town. And she's adopted a hyper-progressive view of sexuality. And she's asking the priest about his views on these things. And at one point in their conversation, she says to the priest, she says, I believe that religion is a poor substitute for sexuality. And the priest kind of pauses and he looks at her and he says, huh, well, it's interesting. I believe the opposite. I believe that sexuality is a poor substitute for religion. In fact, I believe that when any young man knocks on the door of a brothel, what he seeks after is actually God. Now, it's a novel. It's a fictional story. But this very real Lutheran pastor happens to believe what that fictional Catholic priest said. That ultimately... So often when we are chasing after these urges and these desires and these needs, what we're after is a level of intimacy this way, but ultimately this way that only God can satisfy. And we have been trying to satisfy these deep needs for connection, relationally and spiritually, in all kinds of backward, broken, darkened, and unenlightened ways. But you who are in Christ, you do not have to do that anymore. You do not have to do that anymore. The lights have been turned on for you. Do we have all the answers for how to live this out? No, but here's what you do know. Your trauma does not have to guide you. You do not have to live by lies. You now have the truth. God lives in you and speaks to you and your mistakes, all of them, are forgiven. You don't have to hide them or glorify them. You can just rest in the knowledge that through Jesus Christ, you're forgiven for them. And let these things, let these things give peace to your heart. And then take all these needs that you have. And rather than try to fumble around in the darkness, lift them up to the light and say, Lord, I know I need this and I need this and I have a desire for this, but I know that I live in the light of your love. Lead me, show me what is most glorifying to you. What is going to be most edifying to me? Show me, lead me, and then watch as he does. Amen.